Father, we do pray that you would be with us today as we study your word. Teach us your truth, and by your spirit, we ask that your truth would change us and compel us to follow Christ, for those who don't know him, to receive the light, to receive Christ as their Savior and Lord. Only your spirit can do that in the heart of man. No preacher, no one of us here can make that happen. And so we ask for that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It is such a blessed privilege we have to gather together, to fellowship, to worship, and now to point our minds and hearts to God's Word and study His law, His decrees to us. This Advent season, we are looking at John chapter 1. John the Apostle approached the Advent quite differently than the other gospel writers. Matthew laid out a narrative that assured us of Christ's royal lineage. Mark said nothing really about the Advent time, the birth of Christ. He just launches right into Christ's ministry, which of course begins at his baptism by John the Baptist. Luke, who wrote the most and the most well-known story of the Advent, of course gave us the story of Christ's humanity, this little babe who was worshipped by his parents, by the shepherds, and even by an angelic host. John is the most evangelistic of the four Gospels in terms of the Advent. In the very beginning of his Gospel, he wanted his readers to receive the magnificent Creator, Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He wanted them, he wanted us, the readers, to understand and believe the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, and thus someone who became a child and incarnated before us. It's someone who we should receive and we ourselves become a child of God. And so he offered this glorious introduction packed with Christology. The first few verses of John just lifts the reader's mind to heights, to the glories of heaven and the Christological truths that we find there beyond what we can even imagine. We read these verses and it's hard to even comprehend who this man must be, the Word. He is Creator, He is God, and yet He is Son of God. It reminds us of the beginning of everything, the triune God creating takes us all the way back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. John's testimony here at the beginning of his gospel reminds us of what you read later in the New Testament, but actually was written earlier than John. It reminds us of Colossians 1. He is in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Almost the same language as John. He is before all things, in all things, in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
John 1 lifts us to these heights. John 1 lifts us to the heights even of Hebrews 1. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, speaking of Jesus, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. It reminds us of Philippians 2. Jesus existed in the morphe, the essence of God, the substance of God, and he set aside his rights and privileges to display his deity in order to become a man, humbling himself, being obedient even to the death on the cross. Now John lifts our minds and hearts to the glories of Christ, his person, his work. He did that even in the first few verses there you studied some weeks ago with Pastor Steve. And he does that again with the language of light. He mentioned it early on and mentioned it in the, what we saw last week in his brief mention of John the Baptist ministry. But now he really leans into this analogy of light and darkness. This light and darkness motif, of course, is common to all of us who have celebrated Christmas. It's the reason we put lights on our Christmas tree. I think it was in the late 1800s, I think it was the 1500s, they actually started putting candles on their trees. You can imagine how safe that must have been. But in the 1800s, not long after electricity was discovered and harnessed, people started lighting their Christmas trees with electric lights. I think the first one was a public tree in New York City. They lit it with electric lights. Why is that? Why do we celebrate light? Well, it all goes back to what John is saying about light and darkness and how the light has come to the world. And this is a fitting motif, right, for Jesus to enter this earth. Light is what helps us know reality and truth. The more light there is, the better we can see. The more light there is, the better we know what is true and what is right and what is real. Darkness is the opposite. The darker it is, the less we know what is true or what is real. Our minds play tricks on us. The other night, uh, the other day, we had rearranged our bedroom, and I got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, and I ran square into the dresser. I mean, I walked straight into it. Boom. Thankfully, my wife's a heavy sleeper. She didn't hear it. <laughs> Darkness obscures. It makes us look foolish. Can you imagine watching me do that if the lights were on? The light makes things real. Light is what makes color color. Did you know that? Color is only a color insofar as the bandwidth that it reflects of light. In other words, it is light that makes things beautiful and colorful and brilliant. The whole reason that people travel to Koalina, some people coming from the other side of the earth, and go to Koalina to watch a sunset. What are they watching? How light interacts with the clouds and the sea. It's a beautiful picture. Darkness takes that all away and reduces what is what should be beautiful to nothingness. Light exists as a reality on its own that's brought into a situation, into a setting. Darkness is simply the absence of light. It doesn't exist on its own. In other words, you don't walk into a room, turn on the light, and walk out of the room and turn on the darkness. 
Now, darkness is simply the absence of light, and darkness, of course, and light represent the idea of righteousness and sin. Sin is ultimately not some creation that God created. Sin is the absence of righteousness and truth and goodness. And Jesus, being the perfect light, is full of righteousness and glory. So light is truth, light is beauty, light is existence. That's why John used the words light and life synonymously. John says Jesus is the light. He makes us aware of reality, of truth, of who He is, of who God is, of who we are, of what eternity is. He is truth. He illuminates everything to show us reality, our status as sinners in need of Him. Jesus also makes, as the light, all things, even the vilest of sinners, beautiful, full of virtue, full of color. And as light, He's the ultimate and real good. He is righteous and holy and perfect. And so what John is wanting to do is to show us that the light has come in person. He's come into a dark world to a people sitting in darkness, to use a theme throughout the Bible. He wants to convince us that we should receive Him, receive the light. That's what this passage is all about. Let me read it together, read it for you, follow along as I read aloud. Remember, John had just stated that John came to testify, to be a witness, John the Baptist came to testify about the light, but he was not the light. Now we pick up in verse 9, follow along to down to verse 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the late 1800s, there was a famous mission that ministered to thousands of people in the squalor of New York City, indigents, poor, criminal people. The mission was founded and led by a fellow named Jerry McCauley, Jerry McCauley was born in Ireland to a couple of criminals. His dad uh, was a counterfeiter. His mom was a lady of the evening. And by the time he was very, just early in his life, they were both imprisoned. And his family, who was involved in the other parts of the family business, didn't know what to do with this young child. And so they bought a ticket on a ship that was heading to America, to New York City. And they just put him on there. No parents, nothing. He sailed across after he immigrated. He lived in orphanages for some years, and only knowing what he had seen as a young child, he just picked up on what they were doing in New York, and he became a criminal. Macaulay ended up in prison, and yes, in Sing Sing prison, there in New York City. And back then, they were not concerned about uh, prisoners' rights or making sure they were comfortable. They literally had a cell that you could sleep on the floor of, a blanket that you could cover yourself with when it was cold, and a bucket. That's all it was. And they would let you out one time a day to either wash you down or let you go on Sunday to the chapel. 
Well, Macaulay decided he would go to chapel one day. And he went into the chapel, and to his surprise, there was a famous prize fighter there named Orville Gardner. And Orville Gardner stood up and gave a testimony about the light. And he spoke of his life before the light, and his light after the light, and his life after the light. And he talked to the prisoners about how even they, prisoners, even if they were in prison for life, even if they were on death row, they too could have that life and that freedom and that light inside of them. Well, Jerry McCauley went back to his cell and he fell down on his knees. He said later of this experience, he said, I felt something miraculous happening in my heart, something supernatural in my heart compelled me to seek the forgiveness of God. And there in his cell, he begged for God, God to forgive him. And he knew, he was certain, as soon as he did, he knew that he had been forgiven. Eventually, Macaulay got out of prison, sort of struggled in life a little bit, trying to do work that wasn't criminal, was a new thing for him. But eventually, he found some, a series of good jobs and ended up working for a wealthy investor in Wall Street. And he became sort of his aide, this investor's aide. He was sort of a butler-type guy, and he himself began to, to do well on the market and do well in terms of financials, and he decided pretty quickly that as soon as he had enough money, he was going to open a mission. And that's exactly what he did. He opened a famous mission called the Water Street Mission. It still exists today. I think it's called the Bowery Mission. It's not a Christian mission anymore, but back then it was. Now, today's passage is how light takes someone, anyone, criminals included, fills them with truth and righteousness, changes them if they would only receive him. Light transforms us. The life of Christ comes into us. There's a presupposition, really, with this idea of light, and we're forced to accept it if we're to believe the Bible, and that is we are dark. We are full of darkness. Even if you grow up in a Christian family, even if you grow up in a family like I did with a, a, a pastor as a dad, we are inescapably dark, and we need the light of Christ to change us. No different than Macaulay or any other criminal. We need the light. We're incapable of pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're unable to light our own way. We need an external source of light to come to us. Well, how does a light come and impact a, uh, an individual? How does it change someone? And then the language of John here is a person receiving the light. This is the pinnacle, this is the climax of his introduction to his gospel that we would receive the light. It really, it really gives us, it foreshadows the purpose of his entire book, that people would know Jesus Christ. They would know the light and be saved. Well, today my outline is simple. It flows from the text. Number one, if you're taking notes, the arrival of the light. Now that first phrase, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That phrase confuses us a little bit. I think at first glance we think this is simply talking about Luke chapter 2, the incarnation. But it's kind of written strangely. For one thing, it says he gives light to everyone. And if you follow the story of Luke 2, not everyone sees that light. And then there's this weird series of 
verbs. They seem to all be in the wrong tense. The ESV says he was coming into the world, but really since it's present indicative, he is coming into the world. The next phrase, verse 10, is something like he is being in the world. Translated maybe in your translation, he was in the world. How do, how do we interpret this? What do we make of all this? I think the best way, after doing some reading and studying, I think the best way to see this is to understand that these verses, 9 to 13, are not specifically about the incarnation. It includes the incarnation, but it is broadly about Christ, the light, His relationship with the world from the beginning all the way through the end. Yes, it includes the incarnation, but it's more like a 40,000-foot view of Christ and the universe. It even kind of sounds like Romans 1, 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him. God has given light to all. The light has been seen by everyone. That's the language that John uses. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Now, the next section, John gets more specific about the incarnation. We'll look at that next week. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's specifically, it zeroes in on that aspect of His relationship with the universe, the incarnation. But here is this overarching view of Christ. And the world, with God, He is creator. With God, He is light to everyone. With God, by the Spirit, He has revealed Himself. General revelation. And of course, this goes back to where we started. He created it all. In Him was light and life that was the light of men. He shines in the dark. He is truth, His general revelation. But you could even say His special revelation. Did you listen carefully to the words from Genesis? I made sure that we included the curse on the serpent, Satan, that God pronounced after the fall. That he would be bruised in the head, he would be crushed, he would be killed by the seed of woman. It's startling because we know women don't produce the seed, they produce the egg, so this is even a foretaste of the fact that the virgin birth. There's even an allusion moments after that passage to atoning sacrifice. If sin causes death, how are we to be saved? How are our sins atoned? Through sacrifice. John is establishing in us that God has been giving His light all along. And the incarnation that's going to happen in a few verses is the pinnacle of the light coming into the world. But the light was in the world all along. The triune God had been providing light for millennia, all the way from the beginning. The Father, the Son, the Spirit have all been here all along, all the way from even before the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. All things were made through Him. In Him was life. His life was the light of men. God from the beginning was weaving this beautiful tapestry of light. He was orchestrating this harmonious symphony of light. And the, the climax moment of the symphony would, of course, be the actual incarnation. Nevertheless, the triune God has been with us, and even through Christ, providing light since the beginning. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Next phrase, 
Yet the world did not know him. Number two, the rejection of the light. Now, I'm not going to harp too much on this subject because I taught it extensively a few weeks ago in our study of 1 Peter, but this is the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that man does absolutely the worst evil he can imagine all the time. What it means is that man is corrupt to the core. He is born spiritually dead, and he is unable to save himself. Even his good works will be surface works until the Spirit changes him and motivates him to do the right things. Man is born rejecting the light. Sometimes I get that age-old question, what about the man on the desert island? And the implication is, it's unfair that God would leave someone on a desert island and not get them the gospel where some of us grow up with the gospel. What about the man on the desert island? The answer is simple. According to the Bible, we're all the man on the desert island. We all need providence, gospel to come to us, and we all need transformation or regeneration. We all need the miracle of providence and the supernatural activity of God in our hearts. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter if we grew up in a family and we're all Christians. We need God to change us because we're born rejecting God. We're born spiritually dead from the fall onward. Unless God brings the gospel to a person and then uses that gospel to regenerate, breathe life into their spirit, unless that happens, whether it's a man on a desert island or a man who grows up going to every church event possible, that has to happen to every individual. As a matter of fact, the idea that is inherent to the whole notion of light and darkness is something that the prophet said, I mentioned earlier, is that we sit in darkness. The idea is that we dwell. We live in darkness. We don't know the way. We don't even know without Christ. We don't even know that we're in darkness. Have you ever witnessed to somebody, you're sharing the gospel with them, and you realize, man, i got to get this person lost before I can get them saved. They don't think there's anything wrong with them. They think they're just fine. Sometimes we've got to teach people what the Bible says about their condition without Christ. And the Bible says we're in darkness. God provides humanity with a light of creation. Of course, that light includes the idea that I'm sitting in darkness and I need light. And yet people by nature reject it. God provides humanity with a light of creation and people reject it. He provides people with the light of beauty and nature, and people reject it. He provides the light of morality and conscience, and people stifle the light. God even provides to many people the blessing of special revelation. They hear Bible verses. They know gospel truths. And yet, without Christ, without transformation, we do what we truly want to do, and that is to reject the light, the true light, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Look there at the next verse, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now again, this is 
certainly true about what happened in the incarnation. The people of God, they rejected the Son. That's the whole parable of the vineyard stewards, right? Jesus told that parable about the master who left a, made a, created a vineyard and left the stewards, and the master sent representatives to those stewards, and they would beat those stewards. And then finally, the master sent his own son. Of course, they killed the son. God did that. He sent prophet after prophet to the people of Israel, his own people, and they treated them wrongly. They did not believe them. They rejected them. And then finally, God sent his son, and what did they do? They killed him. Now, this is obviously true about the incarnation, but this is really true about the people of God all throughout the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. God chose a people. He chose them based on no merit of their own. He preserved them. He blessed them. He loved them. He gave them truth. He gave them light. He gave them the oracles of God, the writings, the law, such wonderful, incredible blessings. But let me ask you, is the Old Testament story a story of faithfulness or a failure? It's failure. Oh, sure, you can find a faithful individual here and there or a short-lived time of faithfulness, a broad faithfulness. But overall, it's exactly as John reported. The light came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. By the time the Messiah did arrive, the, the light arrived, they were in a state of wholesale rejection, had manufactured using the oracles of God and twisting them for their own benefit. They had manufactured a new religion that only had the accoutrements of true biblical Judaism. And so it's no big surprise that they would reject the incarnated light, Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle in Romans 11, I believe, says, quotes from Isaiah 65, Of Israel he, God, says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Jesus would say, of course, we study this in Matthew, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. We even studied this a few weeks ago in 1 Peter, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, John's purpose is not like Paul's, Romans 9 to 11, to place and demonstrate and help us understand the purpose of Jewish rejection. No, John wants these verses to be activated in our own hearts by the Spirit that we would not reject the light. That we would see this negative response. Of course, Paul would say this in Romans 11, that we would see this negative response and then respond in the opposite manner by receiving the light, not rejecting the light. And so John gives to us really the pinnacle of his introduction here. John says in verse 12 and 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Number three, the reception of the light. Now, John is going to detail in the rest of his gospel in fuller ways what it means to receive the light. But let me give you a brief summary 
of what it is to receive the light. The way that I think about it, receiving Christ, receiving the light, receiving the truth of the gospel, obeying the gospel, I see it as receiving two things or believing two things. And that is to take to your heart the person of Jesus, receiving the person of Jesus and receiving the work of Jesus. Let me talk about these in a little more detail. Receiving the person of Jesus, I think, first of all, it begins where John began. It is receiving someone who is God. It is seeing Jesus as deity, as God incarnate, as God the Son, as perfect in every possible way, that He is not, He is in this world, but He's not of this world. He is someone who existed eternally as the Son of God and who submitted Himself to this process, this covenant promises where He would become incarnated and He would live a life, a perfect life, never sinning. He is God. He was born of a virgin to establish His bona fides as a divine being. He was not born in the normal way. He was miraculously conceived. So from the beginning, we learn that this is divine. This man is God. He is deity. He is God incarnate. He is perfect in every possible way. He is holy. He's different than anyone else. And he would eventually die because of that very claim. This is the very reason that the people of Jesus' day killed him. Because he makes himself to be God, forgiving sin, accepting worship. No good, nice person accepts worship. And people would bow down at his feet and he accepted it because he was God. It may have been veiled with humanity, but he is God. John establishes this. We receive him in his person. We receive him as God, and we see him as God. And we do what Thomas the apostle did later on, and we worship him as my Lord and my God. We worship him as God. And we receive Him as God, not just in the sense of, oh, I recognize deity. We receive Him as my Lord. He is the God that I worship. He is the God whom I live for. And I build my life around. And I sing songs to. And I think about and try to spread news of and convince others of. He is God. It means we also receive Him, not just as divine, but also as Messiah. That's the word Christ in the Greek, Messiah, Hamashiach in the Hebrew, Savior. I think we're to see John's words later on, as John the Baptist's words later on, when he sees Jesus, the Lamb of God. We are to see Him as the ultimate sacrifice, the one who came to end all sacrifices, We understand, we receive Him because we understand our sin requires death. It requires blood. And if we continue to sin, which that's what people in hell continue to do, if we continue to sin, we continue to face the separation and death that God 
has created in hell. And what we need is an atoning sacrifice. We need a Savior. We need someone to come along and pay that price for us. And so we receive Him as deity, yes, but also as our Savior. And again, as our Savior. He's my Savior. He actually paid for my sins on the cross, and I trust Him for it. I believe in Him. I receive Him as such. I receive Jesus Christ in His person. I also said it also means to receive Christ's work, the work of Christ. And I think one of the things it means is to receive His work of imputation. I just alluded to it in terms of receiving Him as Messiah. But it's seeing both sides of imputation. It's both sides of the same coin, right? One side is the side that we're most familiar with. If you grew up around church, you probably, even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably heard this. Jesus died for my sins. The idea that, his, that my sins are on him on the cross, that is imputation, my sins covering him. But it's also receiving him in terms of imputation, his work of imputation, as providing the righteousness I need to stand before God. The Bible talks about this righteousness in Romans 3, talks about this righteousness in uh, Romans 4, talks about this righteousness in 2 Corinthians uh, 5. I, have, I, I drive a Jeep, and uh, if you're a Jeep owner, you know about ducking. Ducking is where we put these little rubber ducks on each other's cars. Sometimes they have a little message on them. I have some ducks in my console that I put on Jeeps that I know is not a rental, I put it on a Jeep, and I write on the bottom of that duck, 2 Corinthians 5.21, in hopes that they'll look that up and they'll realize Jesus' work of imputation. He who was righteous took on sin. He who never sinned became sin for me so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin. He did nothing wrong. He is a perfect God, but he took on sin. He didn't sin, but sin was imputed upon him so that his righteousness could be imputed on us. So that's the work of Christ that we need to receive, his imputation. Now, Jesus provided this great exchange. We receive also the truth of his resurrection. He was not buried to die and suffer for eternity, he had power, and so he was raised up. He conquered death. He conquered sin and is now all the way up back up on his throne and one day will return. And so we receive his work of resurrection as conquering death and sin and something that because of that can be bestowed upon us, eternal life, resurrected bodies, eternal fellowship and perfection with God. And we hope in that. We receive that truth and we build our lives around that hope. We receive his work of resurrection. And we also receive him as our Lord and our model. Jesus would say, if anyone wants to follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow. We do whatever we can to be like our Savior. So we receive him not just something he did and something he uh, uh, provided. We receive him as a model, someone who we want to emulate and be like and follow and talk like and in every way live like. 
we receive him as our model. He is our mentor. The Bible encourages us to follow other faithful Christians, to fashion our lives, to inspect their lives, but we only do that insofar as they follow Christ. Paul even said, follow me as I follow Christ. Mimic me as I mimic Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us to look to our leaders at their way of life and imitate them. Why? Because they live a life after Christ. They have mimicked Christ. So we receive him as our model. So all that to say, and you could probably add to this list, but all that to say is when you receive Christ, you receive him in his person as the Messiah God and his work as the one who imputed, the one who was resurrected, and the one who is our model, our Lord. What does John tell us at this point? If we receive the light... If we truly receive Christ, then what? He says, you have the right to become the children of God. You become what Paul says is a true Jew. You become a people of God. You join in this fellowship. You become what the Old Testament nation of Israel was set up to be, but always failed and was reje- and rejected you become a child of God now lest you should boast John adds verse 13 who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor the will of man but of God this is the proper and best understanding of the interplay between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility believe receive enjoy choose follow Repent, but as you do, understand it is not ultimately you, but God working in you. Don't look at the Jewish nation as a whole or anyone else who is lost and pat yourself on the back, thinking yourself to be better than them. I'm sure glad I received the light, unlike all these pagans. Understand that it is ultimately God's work and God's will, God's activity on your heart, not yours, that caused all this. John will get more into this. Even in chapter 3, Jesus is evangelizing Nicodemus. He doesn't give him a list of things to do. That's the last thing a Pharisee needs someone who's a member of the Sanhedrin, a list of duties because he'll do them all and pat himself on the back. Jesus says, no, God must do a work in you. The Holy Spirit blows wherever he wants. We don't even know. All we can do is fall on our face and say, Lord, change us. Let me tell you something. If that's your desire, if that's the point that you have come to, then I've got good news for you. The Holy Spirit is doing it. He's changing you. You don't have to worry, am I elect or not, or what's the sovereignty of God? If you repent and you love Christ, you know that you are. If you receive Jesus, you you don't have to doubt that. We don't know what God's plan and who he's going to save and who are and who aren't. All we know is if we repent, if we receive Christ, we have the right to become children of God. God has done a work in us. Maybe some of you even feel that now. God is stirring you in your heart to receive Christ, to do the very thing I described moments ago. 
you can feel that tug. You can feel that desire welling up within you. I want to receive Christ. You can do that now. I, I was in a meeting much like this myself, and I was sitting over on the right side, and I heard someone talking, and I didn't walk an aisle or sign a card or repeat some prayer. I just bowed my heart where I was. I'm not even sure if I bowed down, but in my mind and in my heart, I said, Lord, I have faith, and I receive you. I turn from my sin, and I love you. Maybe some of you need to do that or are doing it right now. And if you're his, you continue to turn your heart to him. You continue to follow Christ. You continue to receive the light and receive Christ. You continue to have faith in him and love him. You continue all those things that I mentioned about receiving Christ. You know him more as your God. You worship him more. You thank him more. You rejoice more. You're more and more like his son. You continue in that faith and repentance that God compelled you toward early or maybe even more recently. Well, let's thank him for that work and pray that God will continue to do that work in us. Father, we do thank you that you come in us and you compel us to receive and not reject. And we pray for those who are in this room who have not received, help them first to understand that they are living in a state of rejection. And one day it will be too late and they will expend their eternity doing the very thing they want, and that is rejecting God and paying for it. I pray that they would be convicted by your Spirit even now. Change their hearts, compel them, so that their will would change and they would choose you and love you and repent and receive the light. We pray that would happen even now. And again, for those of us who are believers, we ask that we would continue in this way, in this path of repentance and faith. May this be definitive of who we are, fashioning our lives after the one who saved us, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. All right, stand with me. This benediction, inspired by 1 Kings 8, 56 to 58. May the Lord, who has never failed in any of his good promises, who does not leave or forsake his own, may he turn your hearts to him, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commands that he gave to our fathers in the faith.